So if you, if you go back to what's happened in the, just in the last four weeks, on September the 9th, uh, DMVGL was the first mainstream forecaster to say that 2019 was the uh, peak of fossil fuel demand or the peak of oil demand. Uh, within three days, BP put out their report saying that 2019 was probably peak oil. Now you have the IEA um, only four weeks later saying in two of their four scenarios, we've, we've already seen peak oil. And actually in three of their four Welcome scenarios. to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. My guest today is Kingsmill Bond, London-based energy strategist for Carbon Tracker. We're going to be talking about this week's release of the International Energy Agency's World Energy Outlook 2020. Welcome to Energy Talks, Kingsmill. Hi, hi. Kingsmill, give me your overview of the uh, WEO 2020, its crude oil supply scenarios, because these have changed a fair amount from last year's and seem to be more in line with some of the uh, forecasts we're seeing of peak oil demand from BP, for instance. So give us your general take on it. Well, um, so the, the, the first point I think to note is the, um, the IEA has now got four uh, different scenarios. Um, in two out of those four scenarios, uh, oil demand peaked in 2019. So cl clearly there's a shift in thinking going on in the organization. And then in the, the other point, as you know, is that in their central scenario, um, the, uh, the, the step scenario, they have uh, global oil demand only increasing now by 6 million barrels of oil a day um, in the period to 2040, which is uh, 2 million barrels of oil a day lower than last time. So, yeah, all, all in all, they're, they're certainly shifting their thinking. Now, um We've been at Energy Media, we've been uh, interviewing economists about crude oil forecasts for a number of years. And there are two things that seem to have changed in the last, well, even in 2020. One, of course, is the COVID-19 pandemic. And we see many economists talking about, you know, how this is a, a shock to the global oil industry, a shock to markets. We may or we may not see uh, demand recover to mm -hmm. 100 million barrels a day to previous levels. And the second thing is that we're seeing a faster than expected change in some of the key technologies that will affect uh, oil demand. And the, the big one, I think, is batteries. So uh, on September 22nd, we saw Tesla uh, had its battery day, and uh, Tesla is now claiming that by 2024-ish, uh, they will be producing batteries for about half the cost they are now, somewhere in the 50 to $57 a kilowatt hour range. Mm -hmm. That's a huge, huge improvement. Long, I remember uh, reading a, a study uh, a year ago from Rocky Mountain Institute where they were projecting very aggressively $67 a kilowatt hour by 2030. So now we're yeah. lower. A lot quicker. Those two things uh, were, especially the batteries, don't appear to have been taken in, uh, into account by the IEA. And so I would say that even, you know, most of those scenarios are probably fairly conservative. What do you, what do you think? Well, I, I think, Malcolm, you're right. The, um, the, the IEA, is, as, as we all know, has got a very clear track record of being very conservative in its forecasts of 
the cost of new energy technologies. Um, uh, but but um, uh, and, and certainly very low battery prices are not factored into their step, their primary scenario, the step scenario. Um, clearly, however, uh, in their SDS scenario, they're, um, they, they are actually assuming a much quicker ramp in, um, uh, in, uh, in electric vehicles. And, and that's why you see, you're already, one of the reasons why you're already seeing peak oil demand in, in uh, 2019. I think the other thing for me, which I find interesting in this is that consensus is shifting quite fast on the future of the industry. And so if you, if you go back to what's happened in the, just in the last four weeks on September the 9th, uh, DMVGL was the first mainstream forecaster to say that 2019 was the uh, peak of fossil fuel demand or the peak of oil demand. Uh, within three days, BP put out their report saying that 2019 was probably peak oil. Now you have the IEA um, only four weeks later saying in two of their four scenarios, we've, we've already seen peak oil. And actually in three of their four scenarios saying we've seen peak fossil fuels in 2019. Um, so what, what clearly is happening is that uh, the consensus thinking on this sector is, is moving very, very fast. And it's also very notable, I think, that when OPEC put out their kind of usual argument saying that oil demands get a rise, that used to be very much a consensus view, right, obviously. Um, but, but actually, it was immediately pilloried as just talking their own book and not, not being credible uh, by, by, um, by, by the Financial Times, actually. And, and that's, I think, a very interesting reflection, the fact that people are now thinking quite differently. And, and, and almost the balance of a risk and reward for an energy analyst now has shifted, rather than the past where you, you could just basically say, well, yeah, everything's going to occur in rising forever um, and, and pick up the paycheck. Now you've actually got to think considerably harder about what's going on. And I would suggest that there's, there's basically anyone who's still forecasting very rapid uh, or any kind of serious uh, increase in, um, in fossil fuel demand in the next uh, t 20 years is either in the pay of the fossil fuel sector, um, which case they're not really uh, particularly credible, or is behind the curve and they're not awake to what's happening. Now, my take on this is that the, uh, at the global level, you're talking about agencies like the International Energy Agency and IMF and World Bank and so on. And those agencies seem to be plugged into the, the latest thinking. Certainly in Canada, that's not the case. We still see, you know, for instance, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney talking about how there's going to be plenty of uh, oil demand, you know, for decades yet. And we see out of uh, North America, you know, the, the oil industry there is similarly be, seems to be behind the curve. Is that kind of your take as well? You know, Europe is leading the way. China is kind of hedging over in that direction and then North America is, is dragging its feet on this change of mindset around uh, peak oil demand? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's very well put. Um, I, I mean, obviously you're, you're much more in touch with Canadian thinking than we are, but um, certainly from the stuff we've seen, most of the forecasts of, of business as usual seem to be uh, c c coming out of North America and, and, and OPEC um, and from people really clearly talking their own books. The, the, possibly the other really important point to make here is that financial markets have also decided that it's game over for the old system. So, you know, take a look at the share price performance of the fossil fuel sector against the renewable sector since the start of this year. Now, the fossil fuel stocks have been absolutely whacked. Um, and, and you have all these 
wonderful charts that people are starting to put up, like Orsted against Exxon and Tesla against um, you know the oil sector, whatever it is. I mean, just just take a look. And the, the reason this is interesting is because financial markets, of course, try to discount the future and they try to understand what's happening in the future. And there's, there's a lot of money at stake, and they don't like getting it wrong. So the big difference between financial markets and um, and, and and politicians and, and forecasting teams from incumbents is uh, that they don't have a stake in the game of continuity. They just want to get it right. And, and now that financial markets are increasingly deciding that actually the future is, is one of, of peaking and, and declining demand for fossil fuels and they're selling down the stocks, that actually creates its own momentum because it means on the one hand that Tesla can rain, raise $5 billion in an afternoon and build a new terra factory or gigafactory. Um, and, but at the same time, it means that the, the fossil fuel companies struggle to raise money and struggle to continue doing what they're doing. And, and then and, and instead they shift in the way that BP has done um, towards a, a new strategy. And if I may, may make one final point, um, people have been saying to me, well, you know, this is just you guys in Europe. It's uh, in the words of OPEC, it's just sort of cultural thing. You're just you know, reflecting the, the aspirations of the society around you. Well, I, I, actually, I, I don't agree with that because financial markets are, um, again, not financial markets actually very much controlled by U.S. money, and and it's U.S. money as well, which is realizing that the game is up for the old system. Right, and uh, one of the things that we've talked about in previous interviews, Kingsmill, is this idea of exponential growth, and the idea that renewables and uh, other new energy technologies, that's where all the growth is. And that is thought to be really concerning for fossil fuel companies, particularly oil companies. Uh, are you still of that opinion? Are you seeing exponential growth as opposed to incremental growth? So the exponential growth um, has continued in spite of the crisis. I think at the beginning of the crisis of, of COVID, everyone the, the, a lot of people were saying, well, this is going to knock all this, all this green nonsense on the head um, and people are going to stop buying electric vehicles and you know, get back to what they know best. And actually that hasn't happened. We've continued to see exponential growth. We've continued to see, um, so for example, if I take the IEA numbers, uh, that they uh, are now forecasting a 7% fall, 6 or 7% fall in fossil fuel demand in 2020 and still 15% uh, uh, growth in, in solar and wind supply. So, um, you have continued to see this this exponential growth in in, um, in demand for renewable energy technologies. Continued to see um, cost falls coming through. I and mean, you mentioned uh, Tesla, and now you know everyone feels that we're basically at one hundred dollars per kilowatt hour, um, which was always felt to be the magic number for the uh, for the uh, transportation system to start to shift. Um, and, and you've also, of course, now started to see a big political shift. You know, led by Europe and then President Xi's announcement. That China is going to make the, uh, the, the the move to uh, net zero. So, the 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 stars are certainly aligning for change, and exponential growth is is still coming through. Now, one of the arguments that uh, I've made in the Canadian context is that for significant impact to be uh, felt by the Canadian oil industry, you don't have to have rapid decline of uh, demand, what will happen first is that markets will be disrupted. 
So we remember back to 2014, 2015, 2016, prices fell uh, because of a, a big, an oversupply of only 2 million barrels a day in a 100 million barrel a day market. And so what does 2 million barrels a day of demand destruction do in 2020 or 2022? But what about 5 million barrels a day? What about yeah. 7 million barrels a day? I mean, the, the, it seems to me, and I'd be interested in getting your view on this, it seems to me that in a commodity market like this, a very small amount of demand destruction brings with it tremendous volatility and disruption. You, your, your take on that? Well, your point, of course, is extremely well made, that you don't need a lot of um, a, a decline to have huge impact on price. And this is the point that a lot of the, uh, the fossil fuel advocates completely miss, which is that it's not volume which kills companies, it's price falls. Um, and, and just take a look at what happened to the, the US coal sector, or indeed the global coal sector, where uh, uh, half the US coal sector went bust within uh, three years of, of peak global coal demand. But don't forget that global coal demand only fell by 3%. Um, and that was enough to bankrupt half the sector. So you if you're a company at the top end of the cost curve and you've got overcapacity, global overcapacity, um, then you, you're going to be in real trouble, obviously. And I think there's one other really important point, which is that the, the, the industry sort of argues and hopes that this is just a kind of another cycle. And, and, and therefore, sure, it's unpleasant at the moment, but you know, we've seen this before and um, we, we're going to cycle back up again and it's all going to be fine. And that would be right if it weren't for the fact that we've almost certainly seen peak overall demand after over a century of growth to see a peak and then a decline. It doesn't mean that it's game over the industry as a whole, but it does mean that it's a new pricing environment. And as people are now saying, rather than being a seller's market where you could sell at um, whoever had basically the highest cost, the highest marginal cost. Now it's going to be a buyer's market. And you're going to, if you want to survive, just like any, any other industry, you've got to cut costs as much as possible. You've got to innovate. And, and quite frankly, to state the point once more, anyone at the top end of the cost curve, there's no, just no call whatsoever anymore for their stuff. And those assets, sadly, are going to have to be closed down and the people working on them are gonna to have to redeploy into new areas. And the sooner people wake up and realize that, the less damage will be done. Well, let's talk about your point uh, that markets are disrupted, not by volume, but by price. Hmm. So a couple of years ago, uh, Spencer Dale, the chief economist of BP, wrote a piece about the strategy of low cost producers in a market where demand is declining. And he argued that once it's clear that we've hit peak oil demand and there uh, is, you know, prices are going to be potentially lower, then low cost producers like the Saudis who can get the oil out of the ground for $5 a barrel and 40% of global oil costs $10 or less per barrel to produce, those producers are going to flood the market in an attempt to, to uh, win market share back from, say, the American shale producers, the Canadians, other high-cost producers, and they want to maximize returns 
before that market uh, uh, declines too much. Yep. Uh, what's your what's your take on that argument? Well, I, I think Spencer um, is, is completely right. I mean, basically, as a as a as a oil producer, you've got three potential strategies right at, at the top of the market. You can either um, try and sell what you can sell while you can still sell it at a reasonable price, uh, which seems to be what um, Saudi Arabia may be starting to do, because as you know, they've decided to increase their um, oil, oil production now. Um, or you try and tighten up your cartel um, and, uh, and, and, and maintain price discipline, um, or, or you, you radically shift your economy and, and start doing something new, um, which of course is, what, is the option that Norway is now starting to take. And it's very impressive to see the Norwegian leadership, for example, of electric vehicle, uh, uh, electric vehicles, not just electric vehicles, but electric vehicle technology and all of the um, associated sub-sectors around that. So I mean, you have options if you're a, if you're a producer at the top of the market. Uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, certainly selling, selling what you can while there's still a price for it is, is a fairly sensible strategy for a relatively low cost producer. Uh, I would argue that the Saudis are actually pursuing a couple of the points, the strategic options that you just described. One of them, of course, they've just launched a big hydrogen strategy. So they want mm -hmm. to make uh, to maximize their natural gas resources. And the other is they also want to move into petrochemicals. And uh, some of that will be natural gas, but some of it will also be oil using the new one-step um, petrochemical process. And that seems to me to suggest that the Saudis are primed to open the floodgates and maximize whatever they can out of, out of, their, out of their resource. And it seems to me that once that happens, then it becomes a free for, free for all, a free fall in the market and there's no bringing it back. Now that runs counter to those who argue that there's been, you know, over the last, at least prior to around 2014, there's been a serious underinvestment in oil uh, production. And in fact, that is setting the stage for a rally in prices around late 2021 and into 2022. What's your take on that? Well, this argument about underinvestment in oil production leading to a spike in oil prices, you know, we, as you know, we've heard it before. Um, and, and as I recall, we were meant to be having uh, oil price spikes uh, around now because of the lack of investment three or four years ago. Um, so it, 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 it seems it's, uh, uh, so that's the first one I make. The second one I would make is that um, actually, I, I think there is some truth to this, that a lack of investment now will mean price spikes later. And I don't think the cyclicality of the oil industry has gone away. Um, so we could we could get price spikes. But the point to me is that you're likely to have price uh, uh, cyclicality within a falling mean over time. And, and the other big difference to um, previous occasions is that if you have... Um, uh, it, 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 if you have high prices when alternatives exist, it just drives the growth of the alternatives even faster um, and therefore hastens the demise of, of the incumbency. So the, the, the other thing we didn't talk about in terms of the IEA forecast, the, the really interesting aspect, or for me, one of the most interesting aspects of the IEA forecast that's very relevant to, to this debate is that they took down their expectations for uh, for growth of Chinese transport demand very significantly. Um, and they basically said, we don't, we, we hardly expect any new Chinese transport 
demand. And that was because of a policy change in China um, with the government saying we want to have 25% of uh, sales being electric vehicles in 2025. Well, you know, you ain't seen nothing yet. There are people now saying that actually China could be 100% EV by 2030. Um, because why wouldn't they? I mean, they've got to import basically all of their oil. Um, if the price of, uh, if Elon Musk and, and, and co get the price of batteries down to price parity between electric vehicles and, um, uh, uh, and, and uh, petrol cars, then why wouldn't a country like China, which is a massive oil importer, just say, no, you've got to, you've got to switch. You can only sell electric vehicles after year X, as the Europeans are now starting to do. One of, I, I want to stay with this uh, idea of um, disrupted markets and uh, underinvestment in oil and gas, because one of the things we're seeing is that digital technologies like artificial intelligence and automation and, and uh, uh, big, uh, big data and uh, analytics, uh, they're late to the oil and gas game. The, these were technologies that were adopted in, say, manufacturing you know, 15, 20 years ago but they're really only making their way into oil and gas in a big way now in the last uh, two, three, four years. And what that does, of course, is uh, increases labor productivity so that you can produce uh, a lot more oil uh, at a lower cost and with fewer people. And we're seeing that in Canada in a big way. The oil sands companies are uh, started doing this and we're seeing layoffs uh, already as a direct result of it. I suspect that has to be happening. I know it's already happening in the shale industry. I interviewed an economist there a couple of years ago who was already noticing the, the trend. Produce more oil with fewer workers at a lower cost, lower mm -hmm. capital investment. Mm -hmm. That seems to me to be an underreported and underdiscussed trend when it comes to discussing uh, the underinvestment argument around oil. So what's your take on that? Uh, yeah, look, I, I mean, as you know, the... The, the, the oil and gas sector globally actually is already incredibly efficient um, and, and, and employs a relatively small number of people given the amount of energy they produce. Um, and, and this is, of course, one reason why for oil importing countries in particular, the, um, the, the shift to these new energy technologies is quite a positive step because, first of all, they don't have any of it, so it doesn't really impact their workforce. And then secondly, there's a lot of jobs in, in, uh, in renewables. But I, look, I think it's... It, it's, it's um, uh, it, it's what they call the um, it's what they call the sailing ship effect. Um, so when steamships emerged at the end of the nineteenth century, sailing ships are like a tiny window where they just got a lot better very quickly. Um, and all the stuff that people said they couldn't do, they finally figured out how to do, and they got better and cheaper and more efficient. Um, and and I think the same thing will now happen to the global fossil fuel system. System actually, will, you know, it will strip costs out and get cheaper and more efficient. In, in a sort of um, in, in, in an attempt to stave off the inevitable um, uh, uh, d decline, and and yeah, we'll 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 see more of this. Uh, I'm sure. Kingsville, thank you very much for this. Has been very insightful, and um, I think that uh, oil the oil markets are going to uh, command our attention over the next few years, the next five years particularly. But it'll be for very different reasons than they have in the past. It won't be uh, attention to cyclical change. We're going to be paying a lot of attention to the structural changes that are taking place and what that means for peak demand and how quickly 
uh, oil uh, consumption uh, actually declined. So thank you very much for this. And uh, we'll look forward to having you back on the podcast in the future. Thanks, Malcolm. Always a pleasure.